Hello and welcome to Family Law and More, where your hosts Isabel Hawkins and I'm Lisa Edmonds. And today we are joined by Daniel Thomas from Chroma, which is the UK's only national provider of the creative art therapies. Hello and welcome, Daniel. Hello, thank you very much. So, Daniel, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about what Chroma does? Yes. Okay. So, professionally, I'm a music therapist. I qualified uh, over 20 years ago now and co founder and managing director of Chroma. And as you say, we are the largest and leading provider of the creative arts therapies around the UK, specifically music therapy, art therapy, and drama therapy, and then a bunch of specialist assessments. So, Daniel, can I ask? Um, can you tell us a little bit about why creative therapies are a good idea and who are they specifically designed for? Yeah. So you've got with, with music therapy, with art therapy, with the drama therapy, you've, you've obviously got the creative modality. So the art, the drama and the music. And I think it's, those are super valuable ways of working with people that encourage engagement, encourage pro-social behaviors. So eye contact, playfulness, self-reflection and things like that but then if you can get beyond the music get beyond the art into the word therapy that's the space where we're thinking about what's the what does the therapist what does the client want to work work towards so whether that is things like self-regulation so the capacity to calm ourselves down or to elevate our mood it could be processing some you know early trauma from childhood or following an injury a, a range of things, obviously working in groups, learning how to, to be together with other people, turn taking and waiting and pausing. And then lots of the sort of the executive functions about planning, sequencing, decision making. All of those are impacted when we're, when we're working through the creative arts therapies. I think it's important also to say, because I think there's, it's really easy for people to, again, just hear the word music and think, oh yeah, it's, it's someone with a tambourine or it's all about calming but it's useful for people to know that the the creative arts therapies are regulated by the health and care professions council so we are on the same level professionally as psychologists and physios and speech and language therapists it's it's that sort of block allied health professionals and then coming back lisa to what you said about who's it for I don't want to say it's for everyone because I think that's an unhelpful blanket statement, but I can count on, you know, a few hands, the number of clients over the last 20 years who have not liked using music art or drama as a treatment modality. And I think that's, that's the key thing. It's not whether someone is musical or interested in, you know, in art. Certainly drama therapy is not about acting but it can be about who you are as a character, the story that you tell yourself. We've all got personal narratives. And, and within drama therapy, for example, that can be a lovely way to start to help someone explore the narrative and, and the story that they tell themselves about so is the, themselves. is the music, drama and sort of art side of it the enabler to sort of building a relationship that then opens up to whatever that person needs or wants it to be. Absolutely. And I think it's super important, you know, when we get a, an instruction or a referral, clearly there is a reason why a case manager, a solicitor, a school, for example, has invited us in. You know, there's a sort of a, an objective reason there. Can you help with X, Y, and Z? And then when I think when we start working with that client, it's like, what is the personal goal that you want out of this? You know, thinking about family situations and, and family law and the work that we do through about, I don't know, 50 local authorities around the country supporting children who've 
come through the care system and gone on to be fostered and then adopted. Lots of that is working to try over time and repair as best that they can the impact of that early life trauma, the reason that they were removed from, from birth families. And then also in their foster and their adoptive families to start to use music, art and drama therapy as ways in which to encourage attunement. So aligning yourself with how somebody else feels, attachment, sensitivity, love, bonding, and all those sort of things. And it's, it's those objectives that I think, you know, music, art, and drama therapy can really skillfully be used about. It's, but it's always about what comes after the music or what comes after the art. It's, it's, the, it's the treatment. What are we trying to, to create? So how do you get partnered up with a family who now have a foster child or they've adopted a child? Because I think from our side, we often see assessments in court proceedings you referenced psychologists, so psychological assessments. I don't think I've ever seen a recommendation for the service that you offer and that creative therapeutic intervention. Similarly, once the court case has concluded, we don't see the aftermath and how that is managed. And I know from the work we do with local authorities that you know, they just don't have the resource. They just don't have the finances to give children what they need at the moment in terms of additional support and therapy. So can you just maybe help our listeners understand how you're brought into the mix? Yeah, so certainly with children who have, have gone on to be adopted, there is a really vital lifeline fund called the Adoption Support Fund. It's been running for Oh, about 10 years now. It's normally about £30 million a year, direct from the Department for Education. And that is ring-fenced to provide a whole range of therapeutic services. The creative arts therapies are, are one of those, but I think there's about 20 that are listed. And that's that's specifically to support adoptive children and their families year on year, should there be an assessment of need around some aspect of who they are or you know how they're functioning. So I think that has been an amazing support for families and, and young people in that sort of stage of, of linkage with, you know, with court proceedings and, and sort of obviously the, those removals from, from birth families. I think for, for Chroma, we are you know, far and away the largest provider of creative arts therapies to adoptive children in the UK. The other part of what we do is around people who've suffered catastrophic changes of life, um, accidents, car crashes, uh, medical negligence, clinical negligence, and all that sort of side of things. So there we're instructed not through local authorities, but brain injury case managers, okay. court of protection deputies. Um, funding is, you know, it's always going to be an issue, even with, you know, the, the biggest payouts in whatever sector you're looking at, they're all always going to be limited. I think my experience around watching our clinicians work, there is something fundamentally rapid about the arts therapies in terms of working towards those outcomes and goals. And we're always trying to think what is clinically effective. So how can we progress towards that person's personal goal, what the psychologist is wanting us to work towards? It's very collaborative. But then we're also paying attention to what is the sort of most economically effective way. That's very different to say what's the cheapest way, but what's economically yeah. efficient and clinically effective. And if we can find something that fits both of those, then I think everyone is onto a, a winner. Yeah. And therapy has to end. I mean, that's the other thing that 
that we're very, very clear about. Let's start off with some really clear goals, measure them. And when we get to the point where we can say, yes, we've achieved these objectives, let's say goodbye and remove ourselves from the person's life. You don't need to be in therapy forever. That's, that's not healthy. It's, it's, it's a dependent relationship and we don't want that. Yeah, I think it's always important to have that end point um, in sight. Massively. Obviously, you can be flexible within that, but yeah, very important. So in terms of the creative therapies that Chroma offer, how would you say they're different and distinct to what we might term the conventional therapies that are available? And have you undertaken any benchmarking to sort of compare and contrast the success rate of your approach as against the more conventional? Yeah, so I guess by conventional therapies, we're, we're thinking about talking therapies, psychotherapy, Absolutely. psychology, yeah. and all of that. So I think the first thing to say is that the, the creative arts therapies fit in very well alongside the work of psychologists and neuropsychologists and educational psychologists. This is not an us and them situation. We are a very collaborative organization. That's sort of at the core of who we are as a, as a team of therapists. But I think it, it, it is often that the, the creative tools that the therapist have engender engagement. People want to, to play. People want to start to, to make music. Children like to drum or, or you know, play on the piano and those sort of things. We can also very easily, it's called therapeutic distancing. So if we are working with a child and a parent in, say, drama therapy, and we say, right, here's, here's a range of objects some everyday objects, some little toys, some dolls, whatever it happens to be, choose an object that you think is a bit like you. So mum might pick something, the child might pick something. And then they say, right, put those two objects somewhere in the room. And we just leave it like that. You might find that the child puts their object in a corner and the parent puts their object in the middle of the room. Now, instantly, that will tell the therapist something about either how those people feel about themselves or give some information about the relationship. So literally the closeness. And it's, you know, we're not making definitive diagnoses here, but they don't need to tell us all that sort of stuff. Another great example is, is to do that with musical instruments. But you say to the child, pick a musical instrument that you think represents your parent. And you say that to the same to the parent. Choose an instrument that you think represents your child. And, and play them. So the parent might go and find this massive drum and you know, really beat the hell out of it because they, they have frustration and anxiety and yeah. their child's full of beans, but it's, it's overwhelming. And, and the child may go and find the smallest broken instrument. I think it's, it's interesting. It's always useful in my therapy practice always to have a broken instrument or a broken object because sometimes that gets chosen. And you think, wow, I wonder why you've chosen the the guitar with two strings to represent your mum or your, you know, an mm. important person. And it hardly has a voice. And again, I think that's why the, the creative arts therapies are so useful for, for all people, not, not, just, not just kids, as ways to start to express what are really quite intangible, difficult things. And it also comes back to, you know, how standardised assessments, specifically thinking about family interactions around attunement and attachment, they're really difficult to measure these things because they're quite intangible. Yeah. But obviously, you know, we've, we've got something called assessment of parent-child interactions, 
that we can talk about later that is set up to do that in, in, a, in a really, I think, a really genius way. On the next episode of Family Law and More, Daniel Thomas will be back with Lisa and Isabel to discuss the assessment tool that is used by Chroma to assess parent-child interaction. Subscribe so you don't miss out. It's fascinating. If I wanted to be a saxophone, what does that mean? I have no idea. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it's interesting. Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you another. I'll tell you another thing. So there was a fascinating study done by a, a counsellor who used to work at one of the Royal Colleges of Music, and she left after about twenty years. And she just wrote this, not a fun paper, but I think you know, it was like I'm about to retire. I just want to to write some stuff down. Yeah. And essentially, she she suggested that all of the pianists over the years who came to her essentially had issues around control i'm a pianist (laughs) (laughs) there we are because on the piano you're playing the rhythm the harmony the melody you're doing all the bits yeah yeah so you're sort of in control there and again the the people that came to her that played brass instruments trombones tubers all that sort of stuff were essentially big you know personalities on the outside but were actually really quite wounded children on the inside and but they had this really brash exterior and I've always thought actually people who and I don't want to make any generalization to your <laughs> listeners but the oboe yeah that the amount of pressure you've got to create with your lips to get your breath into the oboe and the clarinet and the saxophone a little bit again it's it's that sort of you know control it's 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 sort of strength it's all of those sort of things and I just think it's a really interesting thing what we choose yeah yeah um, I'm intrigued now. Yeah, it's fascinating. So yeah. violinists, totally highly strung. And the, other, <laughs> the other super interesting thing about it was that whoever played the bass instrument in that family of instruments, so think with strings, it would be the double bass. With brass instruments, it might be the tuba. You know, so everyone who was playing the sort of the, the lowest thing were generally in her experience were people who found it difficult to say no because when they were teenager in an orchestra, they turned up with their violin and the conductor said, really sorry, the double bass player is not in today. Could you just like, you know, dep for, for them? Can you deputize? And <laughs> yeah, they said, yeah. yeah, yeah, I'll do that. Of course, of course, of course. And then they got stuck with it. And then that was a recurring theme in the therapy. We've gone yes. way, way away from family law, but how interesting. <laughs> really <laughs> interesting. I, I have a question too. If a child were to be referred to you and they had difficulties with emotional regulation, for example, what would be a general approach to offering therapy to that child? Absolutely. So from my own, you know, music therapy perspective, and I think this, this is definitely the same for all the arts therapies. First of all, it's about getting alongside that child. So building a therapeutic relationship, starting to build some trust. Clearly mm-hmm. that, that, that can be a, um, a core first step. In terms of approaches, ways that we might work with emotional regulation, we can use some structured approaches. For example, the two of us choosing an instrument, or say, say hand drums, something that's super easy. And then I can say, right, I'm going to start off really soft. I'm going to get louder. I'm going to get softer again. And I want you to just follow me, see if we can do that. If the child is able to do that, and, and the, the link here to the emotions is, Soft and slow might be calm, loud, quick and fast might be energetic, angry, heightened, you know, whatever that is. And then obviously being able to come down softly again. 
that can show us if, if the child's able to do that, that they have that part of themselves more under control. If they, you know, go from, from very quiet, they can't hear the, or they, they're not able to sort of process that I'm getting slightly louder. They go just from, you know, very, very soft to massively loud in one jump. Then, you know, you could say, I wonder if that child goes from naught to a hundred mm. emotionally. And, and we get lots of, of kids where they don't see their emotions coming. There's no gentle buildup. There's no, oh gosh, my heart's racing or my hands are, you know, getting hot and sweaty. Oh, maybe that anger. They haven't had that, you know, that, that sort of developmental mm. block that comes as a, as a normal part of, you know, childhood. We, we, we go through those things or we, you know, we're meant to, and sometimes for, you know, a whole range of reasons, not necessarily bad ones, but those, those sort of developmental building blocks aren't fulfilled fully or they're just missed out, you know, completely due to a range of things. So that could be a way of doing it. Obviously through improvisation, just playing together and seeing if, if the child can go through a range of, of moods which link to speed or tempo within the music and then seeing, you know, the overlay in terms of their feelings and their emotions. And so once you've identified sort of how that child presents, say they go from 0 to 100 really quickly, how do you then work with that child to try and get them to, into a better stage or yeah, where they can regulate themselves. Absolutely. So I think it's, it's important. Self-regulation uh, is something that develops after co-regulation. So we want to do that with them together. And we're thinking about how mums and dads and babies in those very, very early stages of life where we lay down our, our templates for emotional regulation, that the child, again, if if, if it's all going well, and I sort of use that, that phrase in inverted commas, but the child will experience their emotions being regulated by the, the caregiver, by the adult. And if that doesn't happen, then in the therapy space, I guess the therapist is mm. providing that caregiver aspect. There's a lovely phrase, I think it's Alison Levinge, about the, the music mother as, as a sort of a phrase to say that's the part of the role of that therapist is to provide that emotional containment. So, you know, we, we will, we can literally practice going, uh, you know, softly, loudly, mm. slowly, fast, and seeing how that, that child gets themselves under control. I think sometimes using unstructured approaches can be super scary because the, the kids have survived. They've, they've, they've learned actually, if I'm in control, I'm safe. So you can be working yeah. with children who are hypervigilant, always telling you what to do. So no, you play that instrument, you play that, I'm going to play this one. And again, that's, they don't have to tell us anything, but as therapists and as experienced therapists, we can go, oh, right. Yeah. You're safe when you're in control, you can see where the danger is. So it's, it's about offering opportunities for them to be different, to feel different, to experience something different. A lovely example, again, using, using rhythm, I think of rhythm is very predictable. You know, a drum beat just goes on forever and we can be playing back and forth with a child and the therapist can intentionally make a mistake. So just interrupt the rhythm and go, oh, whoops, oh, I dropped my drumstick or whatever. Now we're, we're choosing to do that as a way to bring something unexpected into the musical interaction and see what happens with the child. It's not horrendously unexpected. Mm. It can be playfully unexpected. But if, if the child stops, you know, if, if they just have that sort of, oh my God, what's, what was happening? 
then actually, again, that gives us a sense of their tolerance of unexpected non-musical things. And that, again, it's another area that we can mm -hmm. start to work on. So you've told us that you work with um, adoptive children. Do you work with any children who are still involved in proceedings? And I'm talking about public law proceedings, so where they may be in foster care awaiting a decision or they may be at home with their parents, but the local authority are involved for whatever reason. Yeah, we, we do. So we do a large amount of work with kids who've gone through that process and gone on to be adopted. We do a small amount of work with children who are coming up to the end of their foster care placement and the adoption is in process. So that's, that's where I would say that, that, that we work. And, and again, that work is about preparing the foster carers and the children to say goodbye to each other and preparing the child or the children and the new adoptive parents to start saying hello to each other, to put it very, very simply. But it's that sort of bridge between those two family spaces and we, and we work in there. And obviously in that, in that situation, you know, it's right around when orders are made around the adoption mm. and things like that. So. Okay, Daniel, so thank you very much. We always end um, our episodes where we're lucky enough to be joined by a guest with our homemade game, Roll That Dice. Are you happy to play? I'm very happy to play. I love your dice, your die. <laughs> die, yeah. Die. It's a very good die. Okay. Custom made, yes. so off you go. Shall I roll it? Quick fire. There we go. Okay. Um, <laughs> Tea or coffee? Coffee. Cats or dogs? Oh, dogs. Hot holiday or cold holiday? Hot holiday. Books or movies? Movies. Red or blue? Blue. Chinese or Indian takeaway? Indian. If you could be a musical instrument, what would you be? I'd love not to. a saxophone. Oh, no, not a saxophone. <laughs> um, first thing that came to my mind, I'd love to be a massive drum kit. If you had to choose an instrument not to be? Yeah. What would it be? The oboe. Oh, <laughs> so we're lucky enough to say that this is the first of a two-part podcast episode with Daniel and he will be joining us on our next one to discuss the assessment tool of parent-child interaction and its applicability to family law proceedings. Thanks as always for listening. Subscribe and leave a review and any suggestions, get in touch at podcast.unit.law.